yeah, I don't know. Or maybe they think, oh, not for me. That's for those uh, those heroes. Yeah, they can do it, but I can't do it because I'm not good enough in some moral or educational way or something. And the answer is, of course, yeah, this is about you. This is your issue. And you have a role to play. You just got to find it. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Margaret Klein-Salomon is, among other things, the executive director at the Climate Mobilization Organization. She also wrote the book Facing the Climate Emergency, which brought her to me. Her psychology background leads her to approach psychologically all these environmental issues, which I appreciate since our internal resistance, I find, our fears and emotions that we don't like facing, these seem our biggest challenge to act, not knowing the science in more detail. Of course, I promote learning the science in more detail. That Ignorance there is not what keeps people from acting. She writes about facing our fears, which leads ultimately to, this part is hard to put into words, but how rewarding acting on so great a challenge feels. It's very deeply rewarding. You'll hear us both talking about this. We struggled to describe this ineffable, emotional, and social, these rewards of stewardship. But I think you'll hear the magnitude of it, even if we can't exactly describe the emotion itself. I think we both hope that you hear from us enough incentive and inspiration to devote yourself to something so huge. And even if it's just to start getting serious, you're not ready to devote yourself yet. In my experience, the more you act, the more you're going to want to act, and that you will wish you had started earlier. So let's listen to Margaret. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Margaret Klein-Salomon. Margaret, how are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks so much for having me. Glad you could be here. So you wrote a book, Facing the Climate Emergency, and the facing is facing, it's, it's facing ourselves a lot. I mean, you have a psychology background and you go through a lot of psychology and the challenges of, it's not just do this and you, it's really hard. And you talked about your own personal journey. Do you mind sharing? Sure. It is absolutely very hard because the situation we're in collectively uh, at this moment is so dire and to really reckon with it. I mean, I'm, you know, we think about, we have been trained to think about climate as this like kind of like a side issue, sustainability. It's like a kind of nice to have, but not need to have or something. and. This, I mean, it's just totally false. I, I mean, it, it turns out that we live on a planet and are entirely dependent on the biosphere and atmosphere. And so, of course, it's hard. We're dealing with, I mean, basically the apocalypse, right? That's what, that's what we are careening towards, galloping towards. And... So to reckon with how far gone we are, how what a horrible emergency this is, and what is at stake, which is absolutely everything, yeah, it's very hard. And it touches every part of us, not just our intellect, but also our heart and soul and identity, values, mission, everything. Yeah, I think what you said second to me sounds the bigger challenge than the first, because you talked a lot about, say, Pearl Harbor. You talked a lot about the AIDS crisis, where people mobilized quickly and 
more easily than this. And if it was just, if it was very clearly the world, everyone dying, that would possibly be more easy. But it's people, I think it's this internal part of they just really don't want to face, it's just so much easier not to. Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. Will, willful ignorance. And because it's complicated, that becomes easier. But then there's also helplessness. People just looking at this and, and feeling like, God, this is so horrible and I hate it so much, but what can I do? I feel, you know, I feel so small, so I'm just going to look away and try not to feel all the horrible things inside. How do you answer that? I mean, it's different <laughs> for everyone who's, everyone who's in this faces that. I mean, that internally ourselves and with others. And it seems to me that we need, there's probably not one answer because different people come up with different resistance points or things like that. And I'm really curious to learn ones that I haven't come across. Figuring out how to join the climate emergency movement and effectively work within that is incredibly complicated and personal, kind of similar to choosing a career. So it, it is very much a personal process, but there are there are there is also some guidance that I offer generally. So number one is to talk about the climate emergency as much as you can with as many people as you can to help break the silence. There's just this absolutely incredible polling from Yale Climate Communication Center that shows that people are, Americans are pretty alarmed about climate. I mean, not, not nearly enough, but the majority are alarmed or concerned. And yet there is what Gail describes as the spiral of silence, meaning people just aren't talking about it. Only 24% of Americans say they've heard about climate change from someone they know, heard about it from someone they know within the last month. Okay. That's the, that's the max. That's the most engaged people hearing about it once a month. And that's only a quarter. The majority of people never hear from people they know about the climate emergency. It's simply not discussed. So, and that creates a, a terrible illusion of, of normalcy. People, if you're not discussing it, people assume, eh, you must not care that much. It must, it must not be that big a deal to you. So yeah, breaking that silence can have a huge impact because what you'll find when you start talking about it with people all the time is reactions like, oh my God, you feel that way too? I thought I was the only one. When I started developing the climate mobilization organization six years ago, and I would, I would talk to everyone about this uh, project and I'd say, you know, we need an emergency World War II scale response to get to zero emissions. And people, Starbucks baristas and bank tellers and university professors, everybody would say to me, mm, okay, sounds good. Like, and it's like, wait, what? So number one is break the silence because what you find is uh, deep wells of interest and desire to change uh, and the system in order to protect humanity and the living world and yeah, kindred spirits. But then that's just, that's a great and important step. But then actually joining the movement and finding your place in it is quite complicated. But the specific guidance 
that I like to give is number one is to focus on politics and systems change. So in general, on client people's response to what can I do on climate is a like consumptive one or like a lifestyle one. I will uh, get solar. I will become vegan. I will, you know, bike rather than drive and on and on and on. And that's all fine. I do some of those things myself, but they, it is distinct from politics and, and a social movement that, that builds power to, to exercise in the political sphere. So for example, uh, if you are, you know, care or passionate about animal agriculture as you know, we all should be, and uh, are thinking about becoming a vegan, sure, that's fine. But also try to shut, you know, get legislation passed to shut down factory farming, right? Like working, working on that kind of legislation as a citizen, as an organizer, can have such a larger impact than, or if you want to think about it, it can, can magnify your impact. So yeah, so number one is to think about it in terms of systems and governments and building power for change at the legislative level. But, and within that, within that political sphere, I advise people to join the climate emergency movement, which is a very new movement in the last couple of years with groups like Extinction Rebellion, the school strikers, the climate mobilization, more than 1,500 Global governments, mainly local, but other levels of government too, have declared a climate emergency, which is a campaign that we helped uh, pioneer. And so that's that's opening up political space as well. So this movement, the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal, I think are part of that. So this new and energetic and exciting movement is kind of supplanting what has been dominant for the past several decades in the climate and environmental movement, which I call gradualism. Some people call it incrementalism or I don't know, reformism, something like that. But, but the idea that climate change is a problem that needs to be dealt with through gradual and kind of low impact policies that people will barely even notice that don't harm uh, any companies or uh, stock prices. And so gradualism, like carbon pricing, cap and trade, multi-decade transitions to zero emissions, this is still the advocacy of the mainstream of the Democratic Party and the vast majority of big green organizations and NGOs. But don't, it's, it's, a, it's, a, failed, it's a failed paradigm. They've been doing that for decades and carbon emissions have gone up every year. So what we need to do is not gradually reduce emissions, but radically transform our energy and, and energy, agriculture, and transportation systems, our entire economy, in order to reach zero emissions and draw down as quickly as humanly possible in 10 years or less through the most kind of the most aggressive transformative legislation possible, massive spending, outright bans of environmentally destructive practices. Uh, we 
have the ability to do so much and to change so quickly as the response to the coronavirus has shown us. And we can, we can do it. And, and as uh, we demonstrated during World War II, when we transitioned our economy, the United States transitioned its economy from a consumer economy to a war economy in just a few years. So yeah, understanding that we can create that level of systems change where we respond to the climate emergency by actually treating it like the existential threat to all of us the, that it is. So uh, yeah, the climate action, the kind of advice that I give people, what I try to encourage them to do is to join that movement, to, to bring that reckoning, that collective awakening down here to the country as soon as we can and build power for that kind of transformative, not reformist approach to the climate emergency. You're speaking with a lot of passion and your book talked about you weren't like that before. I mean, you, you shared it in the book of, I mean, it was a, a psychological process of acceptance and, and embracing parts that were not comfortable. I think a lot of people, it's really, they don't want to face that. They'd rather you know, someone else will figure it out. And I think that that sharing that experience helps people a lot. I mean, I think people would like to talk like you. They'd like to say, I'm really deep in this. I'm giving everything I've got. Even if it's not everything I've got, I'm giving something meaningful. Uh, And I've shed this feeling of I'm scared or, I mean, you talked about fear. You talked about lots of different emotions that most people I think that they, they see that they will feel that, but they don't see what comes after that. Mm. And you don't sound fearful. I mean, I'm sure you're yeah, rather, uh, it's always funny because there's fear and there's courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's acting despite fear, something like that. And you sound courageous. I, maybe you are fearful. I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't hear it debilitating you, but I hear it debilitating a lot of people. Well, I think there's, it's really important to distinguish between two types of fear that people feel around this issue, or at least two. So one is fear of the climate emergency itself, which, and the, the impact that it's going to have on our world and it, that it is having. That fear, I feel all the time, day in and day out, unfortunately. But I mean, that's the reality of the world. So I, I don't, I mean, I think it kind of makes sense. And what I do is I try to channel that fear into productive and effective action. But so the thing is that that fear, because I have kind of distilled it, really dug into it, like I, I understand it and I feel like I have a mainly effective outlet for how to respond to that, how to, how to allow it to motivate me. But so what I don't feel is another kind of fear, which is social fear. And Greta, Greta Thunberg talked about this too. She said, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I'm autistic because the rest of you all seem so caught up in this social game that I don't care about. That's a, that's a paraphrase. But what I'm saying is people fear, I mean, they fear getting it wrong, right? Oh, I don't have a master's in science or whatever. I'm not a scientist. How can I, you know, it's not my issue, whatever. So they're afraid of getting it wrong. But I think even more so they're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings or making, making it awkward, making, making the other person feel uncomfortable, making the other person feel angry, making the other person feel afraid. And that 
Yeah. And by communicating about the climate emergency, also they, it kind of makes it real to, to them in a new way. Like there's this kind of trance, I think that many people are in, in which that, yeah, they know that the climate emergency is happening, but by kind of confining that to their, this like corner of their mind and not talking about it and not really thinking about it or feeling about it. They, that's how they're kind of coping. So that, that comes out, that comes out too. But, but so my point is, (laughs) my point is if you really reckon with the scale and scope of the climate emergency, just how important this is, just how important it is to me personally, then it's like all of the other fears, <laughs> they kind of get, get into perspective, right? Maybe someone will think that my book or what I say or whatever is dumb or and they hate it or they'll make fun of it or, you know, or it'll piss them off and then they won't like me personally or something, you know, who knows? And I'm not, I mean, whatever, I don't, I don't seek those things but I'm not afraid of them in the same way. I'm not in my, a lot of things that used to trouble me and that I used to be afraid of. One, one example is how, how much, and part of this is because I was younger, but, uh, but how, how insecure I used to be about how I looked and how like driven I could be to just deal with that insecurity and how much just time and energy and attention went into yeah managing that insecurity and and it's like i mean i feel kind of embarrassed about it i think it's kind of normal but it's like we don't have time for that <laughs> we need to focus on what is important and what is like the fact that we are in terrible danger here's the challenge that i'm taking up one of them is that there's a lot of people who simply don't believe that there's a problem uh, or there's a lot of people who maybe they think that there's a problem, but they they want to make sure that they're making money and getting ahead in the corporate game and stuff like that, which is why a lot of my guests I bring from no background in the environment, no knowledge, they still want clean air, clean water, clean land. They have some sense of something out there, but if you left them to themselves, they would never, they wouldn't go through this process. You know, the 2016 election, Trump got elected, obviously no secret there. And I to engage on people who look at the environment issue and say, this is not a problem, or, you know, it's a hoax, they still vote, right? So the challenge of, of engaging people like that, for me, is really like, or, and, and there's also some people who just like, look, it's not an issue, I'm busy, I got to get, uh, you know, I want to make partner, I want to make managing director, stuff like that. Engaging them is, is I mean, it's tough to get a na- national emergency mode if, half the people or a third of the people, or even just a lot of the people are saying, don't do that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is some of what we're coming into with coronavirus, right? When mm-hmm. you, when you have a right wing, a vertically integrated right wing propaganda machine that contains media legislation, creation, you know, grassroots or astroturf, I mean, they have, they really do have a very powerful engine. And I also just, I I think on that note, it's really important for people to keep in mind when thinking about climate, how much that they've been lied to. Uh, The fact that the fossil fuel industry has spent billions of dollars to lie to the American people and keep and prevent 
the truth from being widely understood and accepted. So realizing that, as David Wallace Wells says, (laughs) it's worse, much worse than you think, Mm -hmm. I think can help people. Like what one thing I talk about in the book is grieving the future that you thought you had. Mm-hmm. Like as like because people are not many 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 people are not like living in reality with this or or you know I mean there's they're in cognitive dissonance. Part of them understands, part of them doesn't. So like you said, they want to you know pursue the corporate ladder. It's like I want to say, okay, for how long? Like what does that look like in ten years? In twenty years? Where do you want to live in 20 years? You know, like just I personally speaking, I was, I was whatever on my career trajectory doing what I thought I was supposed to do. I mean, I, I loved being a psychologist and, and it's a great, it's a great field. I mean, it's, you get to help people, you get to uh, get paid pretty well, you get to lifelong learning. It's, it's great. But when I realized that the climate was collapsing and the civilization was going to collapse with it. I just, I, I had to realize that this vision that I had for myself, this pathway was not going to happen. So it's like people that that's an unwelcome thing. And it feels, it feels kind of like mean to tell someone like, Oh, so you want to be a corporate lawyer or whatever. And you're just starting out and you want to get, you know, you're here and you want to get here and whatever, like it feels kind of mean to be like, well, okay, but that's not, that's not going to happen because civilization is going to be collapsing like during your lifetime, during your career. So like, but it, while it is hard and painful and jarring, what actually confronting that and grieving the future that you thought you had leaves room for is a new story of self, a new... So the question of kind of like, how can I help? How can I join the movement? I do think part of that, part of the answer usually involves <laughs> just reevaluating your whole life and your the, this, the whole trajectory that you thought you were on. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's a lot, but I don't know. That's That's the scale. That's the moment that we're in. Yeah, it's a difficult moment. Although, I mean, Greta said, it, I, I can't quote her word for word, but it was like, you know, I felt really horrible and then I acted. And that changes everything. I mean, I was, I was alluding to it before that there's the fear, the anxiety that you anticipate or one anticipates. If I really look into this, it could be overwhelming. Well, yeah, I guess the way I look at it is like, if you talk to an, an addict about kicking their habit, whether it's sugar or alcohol or cocaine or whatever, they know that the withdrawal that's about to come, they know they're going to crave. It's going to be really hard. It's very difficult for them to think of the next after that. People, after they're, after they're through the detox, they don't want to go back. They may relapse, but they don't want to relapse. It's very difficult. I don't know what it's like to be on heroin, but I bet it's pretty hard to imagine that exercise is going to make you feel better than a hit. It's probably unbelievable. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to believe that restructuring your life is really hard. But I mean, it it looks really hard, but when it's restructured, in my case, acting in service of others, acting in stewardship is the the rewards are, the emotional rewards are so much greater than than not acting in service. And so, of course, I don't want the situation as it is now to be the way it is. But given that it is, 
as I understand it, and I know other people disagree, that the, the feeling of giving everything I've got, the feeling of stewardship, of service, these are what create meaning and purpose more than any amount of comfort and convenience. Yeah, absolutely. I personally speaking would never go back to kind of, yeah, the life that I had before, which was just all about me and getting, you know, my career and my whatever appearance and my resume. And it's all, you know, and it's what, it's what Americans are told to do and told to want. And they have a lot of of experience doing. Yeah, absolutely. But there is, there is a fundamentally different way to meet the world, which is the idea that basically I'm a vessel. It's not about me. I'm, I'm here in service of a mission that is so huge that I'm, I'm tiny. Actually, it's a little bit confusing. The mission is so huge that my mm, personal desires and whatever, and insecurities and all, all that stuff, that is tiny. But by taking on that mission, I also, I kind of expand myself because, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know exactly how to put this, but kind of, I mean, you know, I, I, part of what taking responsibility for solving the climate emergency, which is what I recommend that everyone do, sounds crazy. And in a sense it is, but I think it's also in some ways the only sane thing. So taking on responsibility for this kind of huge global crisis, it's like impossible, right? I mean, it's literally impossible that any one person could could do this. But by taking on a challenge like that, it just, it drives you to just go farther and faster and reach, reach farther and try, you know, try again. And it, it's, it is incredibly exhilarating. And yeah, I honestly can't recommend it enough. Also, <laughs> I'll, I'll say, I'll say, you'll never be bored. If you, if you ever feel like, uh, what should I do? I'm bored, you know, like whatever, I've got a whole, it's the, it's the weekend. I don't know. Just decide that it's your, your responsibility to protect humanity and the living world from climate catastrophe and boom, you can spend, you can spend, you know, a hundred lifetimes that way. I noticed that you said protect uh, humanity and life on earth or living systems. Yeah. The living world. Sometimes I say the natural world, but yeah. It's almost how I say it because I I don't say protect the earth because people keep coming back with like, oh, the earth is going to be fine. It's us. That's the problem. And I'm like, uh, stop spouting cliches to me. But I also, I mean, the way I put it is, is to help protect Earth's ability to sustain life in human society. And I'm, I'm wondering if you went through a process similar to me to get to, like, what actually am I trying to do here? Yeah, I don't really like talking about Earth either because it's, like, kind of abstract. It's not emotional. The idea that the climate emergency threatens literally everyone, every human, and basically all life, though some jellyfish or something are going to be fine. That, I mean, just to me, that's, it's everything. It's like the most powerful, it's, it's all we have. All we have is each other and, you know, the remaining biodiversity that that we have. So to me, it just, it feels, um, 
impactful, and also just correct. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. When you think about the environment, what do you think about, I mean, we're talking about it in, in generalities, like what in your personal history did you originally connect with or that do you connect with now? Yeah. So I really, I'm really been through my childhood and young adulthood and even now, uh, really focused on humanities, social sciences, books, art, psychology, yeah, talking to people, the unconscious narratives, all, all this kind of stuff. Not so much science or nature. I was pretty well into adulthood when I started to develop really any appreciation for natural beauty. And so it's, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't something I was really raised to, to value, but I, I came to it through understanding interconnectedness and understanding that if I care about humanity, I need to care about the climate and the environment. I, I mean, yeah, if, if on a, on a personal level, if we could just like not deal with the climate, like not just whatever, wish it away, I, that would be great. Uh, like I, it's not what I would choose to be doing. It's rather just, I want to survive. I don't want to die in a collapse. I, and I want to protect my six-year-old nephew and my two-month-old niece who I have not gotten a chance to meet yet because of coronavirus and everybody. So yeah, I, I guess I would say it's my, my love for humanity when confronted with the fact that we live in an atmosphere and in a biosphere that made me care so much. I really want to ask about the interconnectedness, but I also have a quick question because you mentioned systems, you mentioned collapse. Have you read Limits to Growth? No, not the original. I mean, I know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with the premise and its significance, uh, but no, I haven't. Okay, yeah, for me, it's one of the, the most important books for me, and I'm very few people I know have read it, and, or rather, I know a lot of people who could read it and understand it, but don't care. I know a lot of people who care, but aren't going to read it and understand it, and it's very rare that I find an overlap of both. <laughs> But you talk about independence. You talked about you don't want to die in a collapse. And those sounded pretty vis visceral. And I'm curious what they mean to you. Like interconnectedness is, because you were saying most of your life, I guess it sounded like science was kind of abstract for you. But that didn't sound so abstract. I'm not sure if I read you right. So No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as a senior uh, at Harvard, I took a course on agriculture, global agriculture, that really helped me understand how vulnerable our global food system is and how climate dependent 
it is. I, I mean, just fundamentally, that's that's how that's how plants work. Is they they need a certain climatic conditions that they'll grow and uh, reproduce under other conditions. They won't, mm-hmm. and we'll have food shortages. So yeah, seeing seeing that course and uh, Lester Brown's work has been extremely helpful to me in this regard because there's so much going on with climate. It's so yeah overwhelming. I, I mean, and complex. So you've got uh, you know vector borne disease moving north, and you know malaria and West Nile, Zika. Okay, so that's one thing, and then you've got floods and fires and superstorms and you know wacky weather and that's another thing but what lester brown says and i agree with is that really the thing to watch i mean all of these things are terrible but the thing the climate impact to that's going to have the largest impact is droughts causing food shortages causing mass migration internally and internationally but especially internally. Internally mean within a nation? Within within a country, yeah. Uh-huh. And then that leading to, you know, what the Pentagon calls a threat multiplier, but causing like destabilization, uh, de- like demographic destabilization. So this happened in Syria, right? Where they had the longest drought in their history. Subsistence farmers could no longer feed their families so they moved to cities in huge numbers. And again, the, it's not like that was the only issue going on. Climate always uh, exacerbates uh, ethnic, religious, political tensions, always resource scarcity. This is just what it does. And so then you, you have the Syrian civil war, which is hell on earth. I, I mean, it's that that's what collapse looks like. That's what climate collapse looks like is Syria. And some people die because of the first order impacts of climate because of, you know, they starved or they yeah, got died from malaria or or whatever. But many more people die from the second order impacts and the the breakdown itself, the reaction. And yeah, so that's understanding that on a systems level that yeah that the global food supply was in danger because of climate and that what happens it, in that situation is just civil breakdown face uh state failure as Lester Brown talks about it and then whole regions can fail i mean again it's like hell on earth and right when you look at the syrian civil war climate was the whatever, the first mover or something, right? It was, played a huge impact there. But we do not think of that civil war as a science issue, right? That is a, that is a human drama. And it's humans who are getting just killed at staggering rates. Do you look around your world and think, like, how would this play out here? Huh. I mean, I, I imagine that that's part of what you talked about, very heightened emotions, intense emotions. Yeah, that's interesting. Another psychologist whose work I was reading, or uh, Sally Gillespie, I saw her, she she was talking about how she, her and her group of, her study group, that they would share their apocalyptic imaginings with each other and, and found that very helpful. 
Those <laughs> the kind of, I mean, fa- fantasies, whatever, not yeah, that daydreams kind of that people have. I haven't, I haven't elaborated it that much. What it would be like here in Brooklyn. The best thing uh, is to read the Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. You know that book? I saw. I remember reading about it in your book, but I haven't read it myself. So it's that really brings collapse into a very visceral framework because it's like you can kind of see. I mean, Octavia, Octavia Butler was just so brilliant, but she was she, she was so prescient that she just saw how collapse would unfold and how it would just intensify all of our existing social problems. Uh, and yeah, and how she talked about a group of people uh, labeled in the book as the affluent homeless mm-hmm. because they had something to sleep on, right? So this idea that homelessness is just so ubiquitous and people, because there's so much migration and people are on the move so much that there's like distinctions between yeah, class distinctions among homeless people. That was one thing. Oh my God. And she talks about um, freeways, not basically not being used for cars anymore because they're so rare, hard to get a hold of. And, but freeways having a lot of people just walking on them, migrating by foot. So those kinds of things, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an artist in that way. I can't, but yeah, I can't exactly paint the picture, but Octavia Butler did. These are things that I thought about. I mean, to me, the starting point is just seeing some graphs of limits to growth, since I mentioned it, of just like seeing a graph that shows the population dramatically decreasing. And the mechanism, they don't really go into so much, but, you know, it's going to be famine, it's going to be pestilence, but most of all, it's going to be us against each other. Because when, if I feel like, I mean, right now, the virus is like, everyone, you benefit yourself by staying home, but when running out of food, you don't benefit yourself from staying home and people aren't going to be so cooperative or so compliant. I spoke with a woman who was very aware, very aware of the possibility of collapse. And she said, if that happens, I just hope we do it in kind of a loving way. And I was just like, I don't think that's realistic. Oh man. You know, one will say, "Will we will never be the aggressor, but of course, if def- we'll defend ourselves. And then, poof, like, I mean, there are nuclear states who don't like their borders, and I can see them getting into fights. And that, on the face of it, that shouldn't have to do with the environment, and yet it could. Absolutely. And, well, this is lovely. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the flip side is if, and I, I think this is a big point of your book, if I got it right, is that if you face it, you get past and then you get to what we were talking about before, which no one gets except the people who do it, which is that then you find purpose and meaning and you then find yourself wanting to learn more about the stuff that right now you don't want. You, right now it's like, ah, stop making me feel guilty. But then when you learn about it, you're like, that motivates me more. That gives me incentive. One of the biggest things I want to find role models. I want to find people who are doing things that I'm not yet or that are like, have you come across Machai Viravidya? In Thailand, no. So yeah, in um, I don't know if you've read uh, Countdown by Alan Weissman, and he talks about various places where uh, it's about overpopulation. And so it's this guy in Thailand who, through, think the opposite of the one-child policy in China. Think no forced sterilizations, no forced abortions, no tearing down your house if you have too many kids, and 
uh, think more like superhero characters and little contests and slogans. And, and, and then, by the way, this is the 70s and 80s, so it's pre-AIDS and giving out condoms, prophylactics and education all over the place. And why? Because he saw the numbers of, if they kept on going at like seven, seven and a half children per couple, the economic issues get more and more dire. And as a result, they went down, they dropped through totally peaceful voluntary means, creating stability and abundance for everyone. They dropped the, the, the birth rate to something like one and a half children per, per couple. And this to me is like one, that happened on a national scale, not yet global, but it's not the only nation where things like that happen. Anyway, so this is just one example of, of where I see great potential because until I read that story, the only thing I could think about overpopulation was, well, if the cure is worse than, than the disease, what can I talk? What can, I don't want the government in people's bedrooms, but now I see a role model that's someone who's successfully done something decades ago, you know, and he's got TED Talks and all that stuff. I don't know how I got into that, but oh yeah, yeah. on the other side of facing this calamity is purpose and meaning. Absolutely. And uh, fellowship with other people who are living the same mission rather than alienation, which is what so many people feel now. I think that people can't imagine a psychological state that is like more say mature than what they presently experience. That's a, I think that's like a psychological fact, just that you can't, I mean, think if you think in terms of child development, right? Like a, whatever, a 10 year old really can't know what it's like to be 15 or 20 or, you know, like it's so to the idea, the idea that you could really live for something other than yourself, something bigger than yourself and you, and change the way that you relate to yourself because now you are a, a tool or whatever on a mission for something greater r- rather than just being out, out for you. Yeah, it feels, I mean, I think it probably sounds like bullshit, you know, like uh, whatever ego stuff, you know, like, maybe try to be holier than thou, whatever I could. I mean, I, I, it, it probably sounds, mm, or maybe, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe they think, oh, not for me. That's for those, uh, those heroes. They're like, they're, uh, yeah, they can do it, but I can't do it. Cause I'm not good enough in some, you know, moral or educational way or something. And the answer is of course, yeah, this is about you. This is your issue and you have a role to play. You just got to find it. Now, going back to what you said earlier about the, the hell on earth and the, what's going on in Syria that could happen globally, certainly here, I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on that feeling. And I ask this of, of many guests, and, um, but we can edit this out if you want, but to think of something you could do to act on that. And it's not to fix all the world's problems. That's an important thing, but this is to act on something personal, something that matters to you. And with a couple constraints, it, something new that you're not already doing, something that you do with your hands. It's, I work with all these leaders and they're also very quick to say, oh, I'll get my team to do X, but this is for personal and something that has a measurable effect. So a lot of people say, I'll learn more or I'll, get, I'll raise my awareness. And that's great. But to take the next step to something measurable, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be measured. 
And most people, when I say this, can't think of anything. They generally talk about, here's what I'm already doing. But after going back and forth a few times, something often comes out and the experience is generally much more, well, everyone has their own experience, but no one's complained about it yet. I don't think. Mm, So could you give me some examples? So you see, most people draw on something from their childhood or something like if they grew up near the beach, it's often ocean related and they'll say they'll pick up ocean plastic. Or if they grew up in the mountains, then it's often woods related and they'll talk about something tree related, but it's something that they do. It's not like giving money to someone else. Various people, I mean, because of my background, a lot of people talk about pollution, like plastic pollution and their contribution to it. Some people talk about, well, it's, it generally comes from inside you. I think I've got one, but that's, yeah. Which is, we've started to do this a little bit, but I want to really, really increase it, which is um, growing food, uh-huh. like backyard garden and indoor garden kind of thing. You know, we live in Brooklyn, so it's not, we can't like feed ourselves or something, but during World War II, 40% of vegetables were grown at home in victory gardens. Mm-hmm. And that really helped the country's food supply. So by, by growing vegetables at home, that's both putting carbon into the soil and we, you know, obviously we are, yeah, we use, we use, um, you know, organic, uh, gardening practices. So, yeah, so it's a, we compost it's a, on its own, it's a pro eco or whatever activity, but it's also about food security, which is. (laughs) is the the collapse issue that I'm talking about. Mm. So, and it sounds like something you've been planning to do, and this might be the excuse to do that something you've been planning. Yeah, it's, we've done a bit and it's really about expanding it. And so, yeah. So like one concrete thing is, would be um, growing more, really pushing how much, what we can grow inside Mm -hmm. either, either with. There's my tomato plant over there. There you go. So either with uh, some kind of, I, I haven't done a lot of research, but either with some kind of like electric lighting or just, you know, windowsills and stuff like, like your tomato plant. It sounds like a smart goal, uh, you know, a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic time on. How long do you think it'll take before? I'd like to have people on a second time to share how it went. And I'd love to hear how it went. How long do you think it'll be before, if I'm not pushing too far, before you have something that you could share? Share about the story, not the food, although uh, (laughs) the food is probably going to be delicious. That's great. Two months. Two months? Would you begin to share how things have gone? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I I predict that people like this. Actually, just someone did this exercise with me a little while ago. Uh, He started Leadership in the Environment Sweden. I'm very happy. It's like the first, second, the the next branch of Leadership in the Environment as, as it grows. And so he did it with me. And I ended I planted my first tree a little while ago. Part of me was very happy about it. And part of me was like, I hope people are somewhat like, I hope people have higher expectations of me that like now at, at this late stage of the game is my first tree planted because I want to do more. But the feeling is what I'm getting at is like how it's, it's really, I like it. Getting, yeah, you, you, you've spoken about uh, something like getting addicted to action. Something like that. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Exactly. Action is a way out of the problems of addiction. It, but that, and like that, well. that when you do it, you want more. Yeah. It's not like, oh, good. Glad I got that done back to whatever. So it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. I have a feeling that I don't want to lead the witness here or anything, but I have a feeling that whatever you expect to get out of it, you'll get more. 
even if you take that into account. But I could be wrong. I mean, maybe I'll, in two months you'll be like, everything died. It sucked. It was horrible. <laughs> or maybe it'll be everything died and we learned a lot. And I don't know. Well, I look forward to uh, finding out. So uh, to wrap up, I, I'd like to end with, is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything to share directly with listeners? Facing the climate emergency is a radical self-help guide to help you face the climate emergency, feel the pain that that reality brings forward, and to turn that pain into constructive action. You can get a free chapter at facingtheclimateemergency.com. Margaret Fine-Salomon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I don't know how it sounds to others, but exploring these apocalyptic possibilities, I believe that you'll be glad that you explored them. Decades ago, I might have said they sounded crazy, things that only doomsday preppers worry about. But close to home in these times, how many books and movies have you come across lately that eerily accurately foretold how a pandemic could unfold? People have thought this stuff through, and a lot of it is pretty accurate. If you haven't found any, let me know, and I'll tell you a few of movies and books and articles. I believe that most people who prepare for these things, they want to prepare for these outcomes with stockpiles of food, with weapons, and bunkers in New Zealand. I prefer to prevent these outcomes. Margaret focuses on action, as do I. Action can prevent some of the greatest suffering. It creates motivation, meaning, and purpose, as opposed to just waiting for things to happen and not doing anything different. I didn't ask, nor do I want the environmental problems we're facing and the greater ones to come. That's when, not if. But I'm not making this stuff up. We can change the trajectory that we're on. The crazy thing that I feel most people don't get is that we will enjoy the process when we devote ourselves to it. I hope that's something that came out of this conversation. Anyway, I look forward to hearing how Margaret's garden grows. So that'll be on the second episode. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.